Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Climate change could bring a megastorm that would inundate California for more than a month, bring more rain than snow to the Sierra Nevada, leading to four times more runoff than normal, test dams and levees for all they're worth, and cause devastating flooding of cities and towns with deadly consequences. We'll talk to the scientists behind a new study that says a storm like this is more likely to happen in our lifetimes. Join us on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Did anyone forward you the story in the New York Times last week about a megastorm hitting California? People sent it to me. Our producers and editors had friends or family outside California send it to them. We've been more focused on the mega drought, but the reaction to that piece makes sense. The idea of it raining for days on end across the state, levees overflowing or dams breaking and deadly flooding and mudslides, it's a lot to think about. Also, it's a scenario that's based on a major study by climate scientists Daniel Swain and Xinying Huang, who say it is more likely for this to happen in our lifetimes. So both of them join me now. Hi, Daniel Swain. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. Hi, Xinying Huang. Hi, Mina. It's nice to be here. It's glad. It's good for us to have you on. We're glad to have you. Let me start with you, Daniel. Okay, so as I understand it, California has had megastorms before. Like it's expected to have one every 100 to 200 years. So why is what you're describing so different and alarming? Well, you're absolutely right that the, despite the fact that California recently and throughout much of history has been probably more famous for its water scarcity and droughts and wildfires, sort of on the opposite end of the hydroclimate spectrum from severe floods, this is also a part of the world that is intrinsically susceptible to incredible deluges and extreme floods every once in a while. And that every once in a while uh, is a very colloquial way of saying uh, every one to 200 years, California or the region currently known as California, uh, since the, you know most of these floods occurred well before California was even a state, um, 
occur with some regularity from a, a, a geophysical Earth history context. And yeah. it is, you know, indeed correct that that appears to be something that happens every one to 200 years on average. Doesn't mean it's on a specific cycle. It uh, doesn't mean that it happens exactly every 100 years. But it does mean that it's something that's rare on the timescale of an individual human lifetime, but not rare at all in, in the broader sense. And so, you know, what we're talking about in this study uh, with respect to climate change is something that we don't necessarily have to invoke climate change to be talking about, but climate change is greatly upping the odds of something that we haven't seen in a long time and potentially making the worst case scenarios uh, even worse. Hmm. So you say in our lifetimes, what do you mean by lifetimes? Well, what, one key part of the study uh, that we just published takes a look at the kinds of extreme storm sequences and potential flood events that would have occurred about once per century. So with about 1% chance likelihood in any given year during the 20th century climate. And what we find is that climate change has essentially double the likelihood of, of seeing those sorts of events already. So that's not a prediction about the future. That's a, just an estimate of how much this risk has increased in the background while we've been experiencing all of this drought in recent years in California. That's a pretty substantial risk increase that further rises for each additional half to one degree centigrade of global warming. Hmm. And we're currently on a path, you know, even with the relatively good news recently with domestic climate policy, uh, globally, we're still on a path to double the amount of warming that we've seen so far. So that's a considerable amount of additional warming uh, in the pipeline, most likely, and therefore a considerable additional increase in the risk of one of these mega flood events that we're talking about. So rather than once in a century, you're talking more like maybe once every 30 to 40 years? Yeah, I mean, we, we may already be there. And so with additional warming, uh, we would increase the risk even further than that. And the interesting and slightly alarming bit is that for even larger events, events that might have occurred, for example, every 200 years in, in the previous cooler climate, so only about half a percent likelihood in any given year, may have increased by an even larger increment. So it, it appears to be the case that for uh, progressively more extreme and larger events, the relative increase in the likelihood in, in, in terms of the percentage increase is larger for the larger events. And so that, that really gives us pause because it suggests that the events with the most potential to cause the most harm are actually increasing the fastest. And that may be one of the reasons why we haven't necessarily seen this happen yet, because some of these are sufficiently rare historically that we don't expect to have seen them over any given 50-year period, but that might be changing. And so tell us then what you mean by harm, Daniel. Like, what would a megastorm look like? I mentioned a few things in the introduction, but can you just tell me what I've left out of that in terms of a scenario that you imagine? Well, I think you covered a lot of the key bases there. I mean, the the work we're describing is actually just the first phase of a broader project known as ArcStorm 2.0. So this first phase is characterizing these extreme storm scenarios and the role of climate change 
The second phase is going to be uh, actually mapping the flooding and figuring out who gets inundated and how deeply and how long uh, across every square inch of California. That's something we're going to be working even more closely with the California Department of Water Resources to figure out. But the third phase is really doing this integrated assessment and saying, okay, given these storms, given that magnitude of flooding, what would the societal impacts be? Where are the weak points? Where might the failures in the system occur? How can we potentially uh, work to mitigate some of them before it happens? But all that said, you know, ha having said that we don't have all the details for this particular scenario yet, it's fair to say that this would be a pretty catastrophic flood event. And re regions that have not flooded in living memory would likely flood quite significantly during this event. Uh, in, in 1862, uh, the last time there was an extremely severe widespread flood on record in California, much of the Central Valley turned into a temporary inland sea. Places, uh, cities and suburbs that are now home to millions of people were underwater for weeks, as were significant swaths of the San Francisco Bay Area, Los Angeles County, Orange County, places where really a majority of California's population now lives. Now, there's two big differences between today and back then. First of all, uh, on, on the negative side, uh, California has almost 40 million people, whereas back then it was probably around half a million. So there are potentially wow. far more people in harm's way than there were back then. Yes. But on the other hand, California didn't have a modern flood protection infrastructure back in 1862. And so that's sort of on the positive side would be a mitigating factor. So we're sort of balancing those two things, a lot more people and assets and infrastructure potentially in harm's way, but also, you know, we, we do have some level of modern flood protection that simply wasn't present back then. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that. But one of the things that really made me worry, Xinging Huang, was the idea of more rain than snow in the Sierra Nevada, leading to up to four times more runoff than normal. I understand that you have coined this the double whammy effect. Can you describe why, like what would happen? Yeah, sure. So this is like disproportional runoff in terms of precipitation. And the reason that causing this double whammy is first we have this intensification of precipitation with under warming climate with more intensified moisture transport coming to California. And another effect is the decreasing of this snow to rain fraction. So with this combined effect of intensified precipitation and decreased snow to rain ratio, that means more precipitation will fall as green instead of snow. And that will have the increased runoff. We're actually causing this nonlinear hydrologic effects and um, this double whammy effect is not um, some, is not new concept. We actually introduced this concept um, in the paper published uh, 2020, so like two years ago. And now people also argue like there's actually cheaper whamming effect that is the additional rain on snow effect. What it means is that some of the rain that will fall on the snowpack that accumulated in previous days and the, the falling rain with this warmer temperature, we melt it and sending even more water toward the downstreams, uh, not just over the mountainous regions. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you're saying, well, first of all, more rain than snow means more water and more flooding, but that 
rain on recently fallen snow or <laughs> snowpack will actually yeah. push the snowpack into runoff as well, increasing flooding further. Yeah, this is called the rain on snow effect. Yes, rain rain on snow effect. Ooh, okay. <laughs> so that doesn't sound so great for for people, Daniel. And I think that you were alluding to this earlier. For people who think this will mean our drought issues or our water scarcity issues will be less frequent or less of a problem for California, um, what do you have to say to that? Yeah, I mean, I got you know in the process of it, it's been amazing to see how much media coverage this this research has gotten over the past couple of weeks. But one of the initial reactions from a lot of folks is sort of a quizzical look because. You know, California is experiencing a severe drought at the moment. It's experienced two now historically severe droughts in the past decade. The broader Southwest is in the midst of, I think, what is uh, paleoclimate scientists have fairly called a mega drought. So, you know, why the heck are we talking about a severe flood event in the midst of all of this? And the answer is maybe a little bit less paradoxical than it may seem at first glance. Really, what's what's going on at, at at its essence is it all boils down to a pretty basic fact of thermodynamics, something that's been understood actually for decades, if not centuries, about the way that the atmosphere uh, interacts with 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 the energy budget of the atmosphere, which is essentially that as temperatures rise in the atmosphere, uh, the water vapor holding capacity of the atmosphere increases exponentially. So not linearly but exponentially. So it's like compounding interest at the bank. The water vapor holding potential of the atmosphere increases by about 7% per degree of global warming. I mean, that's that would be a pretty good interest rate uh, if you had a savings account at 7% interest. You can imagine how that compound growth continues over time. So each additional degree of warming brings about a progressively larger increase in the capacity of the atmosphere to hold water vapor. You can kind of think of the atmosphere as a progressively larger sponge in a warming climate. And that works, that analogy works in both directions. It can both hold more water. So if you wring it out, you can get more extreme precipitation. But on the other side of the coin, it also has a potential to suck more water out of the landscape. So when it's dry, the landscape can get even drier because this warmer atmosphere is driving increased evaporative demand as being a larger sponge. Wow. Well, we'll talk about how that interacts after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
We're talking with the scientists behind a new report analyzing how climate change is increasing the risk of a mega flood in California. Tomorrow, we'll be talking about Dr. Anthony Fauci, chief medical advisor to President Biden and head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, saying he'll step down in December. Also, the fact that the CDC is admitting mistakes in its handling of the pandemic. We'll reflect on these with UC San Francisco's Dr. Bob Wachter and also hear from you listeners if you want to share what you think the CDC could have done better to manage the pandemic and still can. You can always leave a voicemail at 415-553-3300 or email forum at kqed.org. Org. For our mega flood discussion, we are talking with Daniel Swain, a climate scientist at the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at UCLA and the Nature Conservancy of California. We're also talking with Xingying Huang, pro- project scientist at Climate and Global Dynamics Laboratory at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. You are listeners with your questions for our experts about what you are hearing about a mega flood in California. Also curious if you have experienced flooding of any kind and and what that experience was like for you. You can tell us by posting on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, by emailing your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org or giving us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And relevant to what we were talking about just before the break, this listener tweets, this is getting a ton more press than the drought. It deserves plenty, meaning the mega mega storm. It deserves plenty, but a substantial decrease in Colorado River water is happening right now. So, so Daniel, if... If climate change is going to bring more extreme weather events, worse storms and worse droughts, how will those two phenomena interact in California? What what could be the impact? Daniel, are you there? Oh, I can probably actually answer a bit on this question. Yeah. Yeah. So, can you talk you about? Know, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. sure. You heard my question. Yeah, I heard your question. You mean about this? Um, Drought and flood, how they actually impact each other, right? Yeah. How does okay, that interact? So, okay, this is a very good question. I know like people is wondering like why actually we are talking about mega flood and we are suffering from this um severe drought. Um so California, you know, it's, it's somewhat special because it has this annual like annual variability for the climatology and it also has this seasonal climate variability so when we are talking about precipitation uh, we need to figure out are we talking about the mean precipitation total precipitation or extreme precipitation so this is like different concept so when we talk about drought we are talking about actually like the the yearly uh, yearly water received at California is decreasing. Actually, this is agreed with most of the model. They actually create, is predicting a drier trend of California. But when we are talking about flooding risk, we are talking about extreme precipitation events. And also from models and predictions, the extreme precipitation itself will increase. So this is why actually we are having this um, suppose the severe drought and increasing sun risk occurred over California, and this is different season now climate um climate um what's that climate extremes, and also if we have actually intensified precipitation extremes and flooding, that means that we will lose water with heavy runoff flows. And mm. this will likely reduce the fresh water storage in snowpack 
and let good worsen the drought condition in the coming dry seasons. Yes. So this will actually connect each other. Yeah. And I know people might also like question about wildfire. So how actually like we have drought, we have wildfire, and we also have extreme floods, and how they connect to each other, right? So this is actually also actually have this compound effect. Um, for example, uh, I can like uh, for example like for the uh, when we have ex ex we expect to have this extreme flood when it falls on the wildfire sky, like actually we increase the severity of this hazard of debris fall of fresh fresh flooding. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's like yeah, connecting. Yes, and I know um, Shin Shinying, you really implemented these apps atmospheric simulations with how basically the changes in climate and the storms will impact the changes in landscapes. And Daniel Xinging was just mentioning one of the other things to think about is how this these megastorms will interact with a landscape that has been burned by wildfire. Can you talk about that? Yes, and I mean, and, and just to echo some of the some of the things that Shining was 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 mentioning. Oh, Daniel, I think we may have lost you again there. Let's see if we can get you on a better line. And in the meantime, let me go to John in Berkeley. Hi, John. Hi, thanks for taking my call. My name's uh, John. I'm the conservation director at River Partners, a nonprofit that spends a lot of time on flood management and floodplain restoration in the Central Valley of California. Mm. Thanks so much for covering this really important issue. whole community of people are working on this in the Central Valley. And uh, I think it's daunting for a lot of people to deal with all of the potential cat catastrophe out there. But our news is that this, this is, we can do something about it. Uh, and we can actually turn this foreseeable catastrophe into a community asset that starts working for us today to not only reduce flood risk, but create parks and open space, groundwater recharge, water conservation, clean water, habitat, carbon sequestration, uh, and river access for disadvantaged communities in the Central Valley. River Partners has restored over 16,000 acres in the Central Valley over the last 20 years. And we're hoping that the state budget will include a lot more money to do more of this work which not only by protecting floodplains, we prevent people from building in them and, 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 and let flood flows overflow into natural habitat. Um, and these natural habitats are a great place for people to recreate in the Central Valley, one of the least served areas in the state with parks. We're, we're very excited because our, our biggest project at Dos Rios Ranch at the confluence of the Tuolumne and the San Joaquin River was just named by Governor Newsom as the, the first state park uh, named in the last decade. So there's a, there's a real opportunity to do something here, and I just wanted to let people know there are solutions out there. John, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate you bringing up the Central Valley, and I really appreciate you bringing up what the state is and can do more of, because we also have joining us now Michael Mirzwa, the state floodplain manager, floodplain managing branch at the California Department of Water Resources. Michael, thanks so much for coming on Forum. 
Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here this morning. And I understand that you were involved, or at least uh, the Department of Water Resources is a party to this study that Daniel and Xingying did. We definitely are very supportive of the study. We have been involved. And as Daniel indicated, we're really interested in getting into the next two phases that he had mentioned. I think that's where we begin to really explore the solution space so that we can adapt and be ready for the future. Okay, so then, Michael, what are the places that keep you up at night when you think about flood risk? John is mentioning the Central Valley. Yeah, the Central Valley definitely is very important. Although, as John uh, had indicated when he called in, the state does have a plan that we update once every five years called the Central Valley Flood Protection Plan, where the state works with our federal partners, our local partners, and NGOs to come up and create a strategy on how we'll manage flood risk in the Central Valley. This scenario, the ARC storm, will be very key in testing out how we go through and really see the robustness of that portfolio of actions that we want to invest in uh, in the future in our next Central Valley Flood Protection Plan update, which will come out in 2027. The current update will come out in October of 2022. But uh, Carolyn, you asked me specifically, what are the places that keep me really concerned? And it might surprise a lot of people, um, but I think it actually has to do with the evolution of um, a statewide storm. And that is number one, uh, down in uh, San Bernardino, Interstate 15. Uh, During 2017, we lost um, part of uh, Interstate 15 due to extreme events. It's um, when you get really intense rainfall, That will compromise a lot of our local drainage structures, a lot of roadways, and the leading cause of death and flooding is actually people in their cars. Um, So I'm really worried what will happen down there. The second thing are alluvial areas, and uh, Dr. Huang mentioned those, is after a a fire, uh, again, intense precipitation will go through and um, really cause Uh, debris flow that actually causes a lot more damage than just a regular flood event uh, because you literally have mud or rocks or trees moving through. And again, that takes life loss and destroys properties. Third area are coastal areas. Sea level rise is definitely an issue that we need to look into. Um, And uh, while we have mapping in our coastal areas, a lot of the property that we have out there is single single story structures, and there's limited evacuation rates in those areas. And then the fourth area, of course, the deep floodplains, which characterize our flood risk in the Central Valley. So so given that we do deal with fires, we're dealing with a mega drought right now. Where is flooding on the list of priorities for the state? Well, flooding is obviously, as a state floodplain manager, my number one priority, but it is one of the top priorities for the state. Um, We go through and we update another document called the State Hazard Mitigation Plan once every five years. Uh, Flooding is one of the three major chapters of natural hazards that are addressed within that plan. So I have a couple of comments from listeners. Stephen tweets, it makes absolutely no sense to me why we don't have better systems in place for water reclamation when these floods are happening in drought areas. Once it replenishes the aquifer, it's just wasted runoff. Elena writes, what if we build infrastructure to capture and or transport the water runoff from the anticipated mega floods. What can you say to both of these listeners, Michael? I think those are valid comments. Um, You know, definitely, uh, you know, one of the other listeners had also brought up the fact that in the future, we're gonna be relying less on the snowpack, which means we are gonna be having to rely as a state more on groundwater. So we need to go through and identify areas where we can get increased groundwater recharge 
during flood events. Uh, and uh, another sort of scenario that ties into that is um, since our river systems have become flashier uh, due to the extreme events here in California, we need to start actually thinking about how we can enlarge all of our waterways and floodways so that when we do have the extreme events, um, they have the room to allow the water to safely be conveyed. But at the same point in time, that enlarged floodway will promote some peripheral uh, recharge within our watersheds as well. We're talking with Michael Mirzwa, State Floodplain Manager for the California Department of Water Resources and the Floodplain Management Branch. We're also talking with Xinying Huang, a project scientist at Climate and Global Dynamics Laboratory at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Daniel Swain is with us, climate scientist at the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at UCLA and the Nature Conservancy of California. You, our listeners, are also sharing your thoughts through tweets uh, by posting them on Facebook or Instagram at KQED forum or by calling us 866-733-6786. Daniel, uh, just before we lost you there, you were about to comment a little bit more on the interaction of wildfire and or the impact of wildfire and these megastorms that you have been studying. I I guess, yes, how will the loss of forests from wildfire, uh, what what will that mean for the impact of of a megastorm? Yes, yeah. Sorry for cutting out there. Our our internet provider chose a great time to do some unscheduled maintenance. Um, <laughs> when it comes to, it's always these kinds of times, right? Right. The the uh, the if the influence of wildfire burn areas and how that affects runoff from extreme precipitation is actually pretty dramatic in a lot yeah. of cases. And it's not just when those fires occur in forested areas, but it's also really in other environments as well, in fact, some of the highest impact debris flows and flash flood events in the, the post-fire landscape have occurred in non-forested areas in Southern California, where there is very steep topography, intense fires, and the potential for really intense precipitation. You know, the poster child for this is unfortunately what happened in Montecito uh, near Santa Barbara a yes. few years back. Uh, in those devastating debris flows that actually killed a lot of people and destroyed quite a few homes. I was in the area in the immediate aftermath, and it was really pretty shocking to see cars, some of them lodged up in trees, boulders the size of box trucks, and really all you can smell is is this distinct smell of pulverized rock. And I think all of that gives you a sense of the power the, the physical power that can be behind some of these kinds of debris flow and flash flood events in the post-fire environment. But why does that happen? Well, there's a couple of different reasons. One is that if you remove a large fraction or all, in some cases, during an intense fire of the vegetation off of the landscape, you remove a lot of the resistance of that water flowing across the landscape. And so it can flow faster across the landscape. It tends not to have spend as much time over the soil, so it doesn't soak in as much. The second thing that happens is if a fire burns intensely enough in the right kind of soil, it can develop what's called a hydrophobic layer, meaning that uh, literally it repels water. If you, you dump a bottle of water on hydrophobic soil, it'll bead off and just run downhill. So you can imagine how an intense storm or or extreme precipitation event could cause huge problems in that setting where there's a whole lot more water than, you know, just a water bottle's worth. So these environments in the post-fire landscape favor the creation of of, of much faster and more intense runoff for the same amount of precipitation. So even if nothing else changed, 
the same precipitation event on recently burned ground is going to produce much higher potential for flooding and debris flows and landslides than would be the case otherwise. And so if you take these two things that are changing in a warming climate, one, the yeah. increasing size and severity of fires in California, which we know is, is to be true, and this increase in the intensity of the most extreme precipitation events, which also appears to be true, you kind of add those together and you get a picture that's fairly concerning regarding the, the increase both in the likelihood that a particular area has recently experienced a severe or large fire and the likelihood that, you know, at some point in the immediate future thereafter, it's followed up by an extreme precipitation event. And my colleague, Danielle Tuma, has led some research that we've all been uh, you know, jointly working on over the years, suggesting that this is a broader issue than just California. This is actually an emerging or an amplifying threat throughout the Western United States. Yes. Let me go to caller David. Hi, David. Go right ahead. Just We're about to hit a break, so if you wouldn't mind being brief. Oh, okay, yeah. It's really just a question of, uh, so when, when dams have been built or, you know, water modifications to the water flow systems, what kind of impact has that had uh, coming into this current, you know, state of, you know, floods and rains? Um, because when I was a kid, that was a big deal. Like dams kind of ruined rivers and caused more problems sometimes than they fixed. Mm. Good point, David. Michael, what's your response to David in terms of dams? Uh, you know, the first thing is perception of risk. Um, when we don't see water following its natural cycle, we don't tend to think about um, what we need to do as far as when we plan to put new homes or buildings within floodplains, that a risk is there. Second thing that we have coming out of uh, the construction of dams is it actually starves the river of its sediment, uh, which means that the, um, the rivers will actually pull sediment from other locations. Uh, and that's particularly important when you have a levee as a defense system downstream of the dam, is that the power of the river can actually pull some of that sediment from the levee, create greater erosion on the levees, which means we have to spend more money to actually maintain and repair those levees. Well, we're talking with Michael Mirzwa, and we'll have more with him after the break, also with Xinyin Huang and Daniel Swain, co-authors of a report that analyzed how climate change is increasing the risk of a megastorm and consequently a mega flood in California. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us, listeners. You're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with the scientists behind a new report analyzing how climate change is increasing the risk of a mega flood in California. They're Xinying Huang, project scientist at Climate and Global Dynamics Laboratory at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And also Daniel Swain, climate scientist at the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at UCLA and the Nature Conservancy of California. We're also hearing how the state is preparing for it with Michael Mirzwa, state floodplain manager in the floodplain management branch at the California Department of Water Resources. And we're hearing from you, our listeners. What are your questions for our experts? Have you experienced a flood? What have you learned from that experience? Has flooding risk influenced where you want to live or live in California? Um, What are you doing to prepare for flooding if it's something that has been on your mind? Email forum at kqed.org, post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or call us 866-733-6786. This listener writes, while I haven't experienced flooding on a grand scale along the lines of what's been happening in the eastern U.S. recently, I do happen to have been through flooding in more than one ground-level apartment, one of them twice. The ensuing mold, accompanying health risks, and ruination of belongings is no joke. Flooding on even the smallest level is a very serious issue, multiplying exponentially with the amount of water present. And another listener writes, We live a fourth of a mile from a creek that finally had water left in it in July. It's usually dry by March because of droughts. We are technically not in a flood area, according to our insurance, but that could probably change. Will Northern California be impacted, or mostly the valleys? So I think these questions are getting at a, at a couple of things here. First, Michael Mears, what what should people do to assess their risk when it comes to flooding? Are there resources they can turn to for that if they're not sure? Yeah, yeah definitely. The, the best resource out there to start when you're going through and assessing your risk is go to FEMA. The Federal Emergency Management Agency has a map service center. You can put in an address, like your home address, literally look at the maps. Now the maps, eh, they might not be the easiest thing to interpret, but um, you can figure out pretty quick what you wanna see in that or what you rather you don't wanna see is if you're in what FEMA calls zone A, that is an area where you're at heightened risk for riverine or what we call pluvial, what would be like rainfall driven floods. Uh, If you're in a coastal area, it's the zone Vs that you're most worried about. However, there's a gap in the FEMA website and those are the alluvial areas that we were talking about earlier. Uh, some of these floodplains will be mapped, but not all. Mm-hmm. Another resource out there is a, a nonprofit group called the First Street Foundation. They also have their own mapping program. Their maps are pretty good in parts of the United States, but in other parts, including some areas I've looked at here in California, they're uh, significantly off where they don't incorporate a lot of our managed defense systems. But what I like about the First Street Foundation is they actually have options where you can see what climate change will do. So you can see if you're likely to one day maybe be in a floodplain. So if you realize that you are, what do you suggest is the first step to prepare? The first thing you need to do is protect yourself uh, and your property by getting insurance. Uh, You can get insurance to the National Flood Insurance Program. Uh, Those rates are tending to rise across the nation due to the number of disasters that we've been having. 
most of those are in the Gulf Coast, but the, the danger is real everywhere. Uh, you can get uh, flood insurance policies through banks and other insurance carriers. Uh, FEMA does call these write your own policies. Well, let me go to caller Greg in East Palo Alto. Hi, Greg. Hello. Go right ahead. Okay, sorry, thanks. Um, well, my guess was for your climate expert, I guess Swain perhaps, and he described how the rain capacity the atmosphere changes exponentially with atmospheric temperature, global temperature. And in general, it seems that fires, hurricanes, all kinds of effects are predicted to increase radically with even a, a degree or half a degree of change in, in the global temperature. My question is that we seem to be at a very special position in the climate, which is incredibly sensitive to small changes. How did we ever come to evolve as a species unless we are at an incredibly sensitive sort of plateau or uh, position that and, 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 and with where variations, I mean, how did we even make it this far if small <laughs> variations just wipe us out? You, you get the idea? Yeah, Greg, I think I do. Daniel, can you respond to Greg and, and what he's asking with regard to these small variations having exponential effects? important to understand when it comes to climate change in a human historical and environmental context is the unbelievably rapid rate of change compared to anything that's happened in literally millions of years. So this is relevant on the time scale of evolution of species. Uh, the, the rate of increase of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere because of, the, of what we've directly emitted through industrial and agricultural and all these other sorts of activities over the past century and a half or so is, is giving a huge kick to the climate system much more rapidly than has, been a, than has occurred really in millions of years. Um, it, it, it may not feel like this, uh, because, you know, we talk about climate change, we're talking about global, you know, mean temperature changes of, you know, a few degrees centigrade or maybe, you know, three to eight degrees Fahrenheit. It doesn't sound like a lot, right? Because, you know, if it's three to eight degrees cooler tomorrow than it is today, that's just a modest change in wardrobe. It doesn't sound like it's substantial. But I think that's one of the challenges about science communication in the climate change era is that, you know, even a one degree centigrade increase or a, a nearly two degree increase in, in the global Fahrenheit global mean temperature is huge from a global Earth history perspective. From a ge in a geological context, these are actually enormously large numbers, not because we've ever experienced them before. You know, in Earth history, of course, there have been ice ages where much of the planet is covered in ice sheets. There have been hothouse periods where there have been alligators and palm trees in the Arctic Circle. So that's not to say that the Earth has never experienced these huge excursions, but they've taken millions of years in many cases to evolve, whereas right now what we're experiencing is a change on the scale of decades. So you can yeah. imagine in that context, it's the rate of change that's really driving a lot of the impacts. Well, can I also ask you about what you predict when the mega flood happens, meaning how it will come to be? Will it be like this giant, fast, intense thing? Or will it be what we have been seeing, which is kind of like just rain for days that just sort of continues, just sits over us for several days. And then just over time, the impacts and the dangers grow. Yeah, that's a good question. 
It's probably a mix of both, actually. The scenarios we're considering in this work are month-long scenarios, so about 30 days, three to four weeks of pretty relentless storms, so one after the other after the other. And they're not all extreme storms. Some of them are a little more moderate, but some of them are quite extreme. So the way I've been putting it is if you've lived in California for a long time, say maybe you know, 20, 30, 40 years for the long-timers or the lifelongers, imagine a one-month period in which all of the worst storms you can remember from your whole life in Northern California or Southern California occur all in sequence, one after the other after the other. That's sort of our historical scenario, our benchmark scenario. We call it the arch-hist scenario in this paper. And the future scenario, which is a warmer, even wetter event, imagine all of that plus a few storms in the mix that are larger than anything mm. you've ever experienced in your life. And they all still occur in that one month period. So there's break periods in there, but not very many. And it's really this continuous onslaught punctuated by particularly extreme precipitation events that drives both the sort of longer term river flooding and also the short-term risk of flash floods and debris flows and mudslides and all those kinds of things. I see. I, I guess what's driving my question is, will we have time to get out of the way, right, <laughs> of, right. of a flood right. or a, a, a mud flow? Like how, given the way that it would likely hit California, would we have time to evacuate? It looks like listener Dave has a similar question. Dave writes, of the people who drowned in California's flood of 1862, it is thought that many delayed fleeing their homes until exit routes were no longer safe. Are there plans to warn residents when they should leave and what routes to take as floodwaters right. rise during the next mega flood? Daniel? Right, and I think Mike will probably be able to follow up with some more specifics uh, on this. But yes, I mean, I think the good news about this sort of potential disaster compared to, say, you know, a big earthquake uh, in a major city in California is that, you know, we will see this coming. No one's going to wake up one morning and be able to claim that, you know, no, no one, there was, this came without warning. This is something we'll see certainly a few days in advance, and realistically, we'll have a pretty decent sense of what might be coming, you know, a week to maybe even 10 days out in the future. So that there, there will be warning uh, on the short-term timescale. In this work, we kind of find that there actually could even be some vague warnings out even a season ahead of time, because these events, all the simulated megaflood events in this study, they all occur during moderate to strong El Nino conditions, interestingly. So that seems to be not all El Nino events, but particularly the strongest subset of them are probably the years in which it's most likely to occur. Yeah. So there, there will be some warning, and so there will be the capacity to do evacuations. There, you know, we have excellent weather forecasts these days, and so this is not going to come out of nowhere. There will be some time to take some action, but you know, Mike may be able to speak a little bit better to what those specific actions would be. Honestly. Yeah, interesting what you're saying about El Nino years there, Daniel. Uh, Mike, yeah, so to Dave's question, is the state focused on warning residents when they should leave, routes to take, things like that? Definitely, um, and it happens at several scales. So first, in the Central Valley, we send out 300,000 flyers every year. They come out starting September 1st, property owners that aren't necessarily within a FEMA floodplain, but in a larger floodplain that the state has identified. And we remind them to get insurance, to plan their own evacuation route, and to go through and have a go kit. Um, we do have um, improvements to the National Weather Service in the state as far as notifications, both to emergency responders and to the public at large. However, 
uh, the idea of having large scale, we're talking like hundreds of thousands of people get in cars and evacuate is something that I personally challenge and say that we need to start thinking about vertical evacuation. And one of the things that uh, as a floodplain manager that we're talking about across the nation is um, really strengthening our building design and our building codes. So if you're in an area that looks like it's subjected to flooding, uh, making sure that the lowest functional floor of your structure is located not just one foot above that floodplain, that 100-year um, threshold that is the national standard, but now we're talking about raising them in some communities for critical structures, like a school or a hospital or a prison, up to two to three feet. Um, so it's a lot that can be done in building science to make it to where you can vertically evacuate. It's really important to recognize too that the evacuation route that you would take to leave an area that's impacted by flooding also is a supply line that the emergency responders who have to go through and notify people that they have to get out is, is really important. And this isn't important just for like our slow flooding events, but it also becomes a damn safety issue too. Hmm. We're talking about the greater likelihood of a mega storm happening more frequently with climate change and also the impacts being more catastrophic as a result of climate change. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Katrina writes, how could these events impact our food growers? We supply food for much of the country. You know, Mike Mirzwa, this comment is reminding me of an interview that Fireboss City Manager Ben Gallegos did uh, where he told NPR you know, that his city is really responsible for a lot of tomatoes, for example, or for food, uh, for growing food for the state and much of the country. And what he also said is that he's concerned that because they're a small town, that, that the state could view them as expendable. I wonder if you could speak to this a little bit. I think Katrina's question is about impacting our food growers and, and food uh, for the rest of the country, but also just how much we do need to think about them. Yeah, thank you. And this is one that's really near and dear to my heart. First, the department is partnering with Fireball to go through and uh, support a study that can lead to uh, a series of projects out there to help defend that community. But the broader question is, is you know, how do we go through and protect our most vulnerable populations, which tend to be these small communities? They don't have the resources to have a dedicated engineer who can work with me at the state or my federal counterparts to go through and seek grants to even go through and start uh, paying for the construction of these large-scale defense systems. And um, the first step is for us to really bolster our outreach at the federal and state level to our cohorts at the local level so that they know that we do have some resources to help them. Uh, as far as the impacts to the ag community, uh, part of what we're gonna be seeing with the climate change is um, definitely that we would expect to have uh, storms really kind of in this October or the uh, April, May windows, what used to be the fringes of the flood season. And that can have impacts on the harvesting in the fall or um, really the, the seeding and planting within the spring. So that will have a change on um, the operations that, that the farmers uh, take out there in these small communities, getting back to the small communities where, where a lot of laborers live out there. And so if they're evacuated in the winter and having to go back and forth, there's social costs associated with them having to relocate or move out there. Um, I talked about the fence systems. I wanna talk a little bit more. Uh, not everything has to be a levy or a reservoir or a forecast. Other things we can do is actually elevating the structures. I talked a little bit about that before. Mm -hmm. um, my big community scale project 
really is actually starting to look at detention basins. And uh, if you have enough of these detention basins that double those parklands, um, you have the ability to actually pull off a little bit of that flood peak out there and pulling off a little bit of it uh, collectively when you do it in mass, cumulatively across the state can make a difference in some of our um, watersheds. Not necessarily a difference for the type of event we're talking about here, but the arc storm is really good about raising awareness of everything we need to do um, for flood management. Well, Elena writes, proactive water management deserves our immediate attention, action, and application of resources rather than just dealing with the aftermath and drought. Daniel Swain, I do want to ask you what you think of how the state is responding. No offense, Michael, to, that I'm not asking you, but I, I do just want to get a sense for you, Daniel, in terms of whether you are seeing more urgency. And the reason I ask this is because I feel to some degree a little bit of surprise to to the incredible reaction that your study has gotten. And, and I wonder if you're seeing those things as being related. Yeah, I think that's a fair question. And I think, you know, it, I, to their great credit, I mean, the, the Department of Water Resources, that is a California state agency that's deeply engaging with this and working with us and helping us out with the funding. So that, that helps a lot. But I think there is a long history in California of perhaps focusing more on other hazards, earthquakes, wildfires, and droughts, because that's what we've experienced more of in the past century than really severe widespread floods. And so some of that lack of focus on floods is understandable. Some of it has actually been happening in the background. But I think that there, you know, there is still in, in certain circles some, some sort of disbelief that the risk of a really big flood event could possibly have increased significantly in this era of extreme water scarcity and drought and wildfire. And I think that this, you know, I think this research and the media and public response to it is hopefully moving the needle in that direction. I mean, it's great to have allies at the Department of Water Resources. I hope we can, you know, sort of gain some allies that, you know, at, at other state agencies as well, because it really is going to require a concerted effort. This is not something that, you know, any one entity or group of scientists or, or water managers or, or flood control folks can necessarily do on their own. This is something that's going to require action from local to state to even federal levels. And so, you know, the good, I think one of the most encouraging things about this arc storm 2.0 project you know as, as a broader thing is the fact that it's bringing a lot of these groups together in a way that was more difficult there was an arc storm 1.0 and while that was a groundbreaking project on its own it was still really difficult to talk about climate change in this context even 10 years ago and so i'm sensing a big difference this time around yeah well i'm glad to hear it and thank you for ending on that note daniel swain Ying huang climate scientists who did the new report analyzing how climate change is affecting storms in California. Thank you both. And Michael Mearswa, thank you as well from the California Department of Water Resources for coming on. And thank you listeners for your questions and comments and Caroline Smith for producing today's segment of Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.